Neil, we are recording. Welcome back. So today's class is on machine design. And then as a reminder, we have a break off next week, which is uh, both a break, it's a chance to continue working on the machine group project, and also to catch up on your individual documentation. Um, things will go quickly, uh, so uh, do your best to keep uh, catch up on your missing pages and projects uh, over the break. The assignment for this week is to automate your machine. So in the mechanism class, you started a group design project. Uh, this week's assignment is to build the automation into it, and I'll be walking through that in stages. And then what I want you to do is to document on your lab page the group project and on your personal pages what each of you did individually on that on the machine project. Uh, there's two goals to this. One is, or really three goals. One is machine building. Um, uh, one is the collaboration on the group project. Um, and then one is the system integration, all the parts on building a machine, which in part is a warm-up for your own uh, final projects. Okay. So I'm going to work in stages back for the automation. Um, so starting with the idea of what is a machine. Uh, for this week, machine is broadly interpreted as mechanism with sensing and actuation, so uh, automation. Uh, given the original goal, an ongoing goal, of fab labs making fab labs that led to studying how you could make fab lab machines with fab lab machines. And so this was an early important example done by Nadia Peak and Jonathan Ward, the SNAP, which is like the Modella uh, milling machine. But this one has a bill of materials of you know, just a few hundred dollars. And so when they developed this, we thought this was great. You could post the plans and any fab lab could make this machine. And so fab labs could make fab labs. And it worked very poorly. Very few labs succeeded in reproducing it. It was just uh, too difficult to do all the steps to do it. Um, so in stages, one of the descendants of that is the project Jens is doing. Uh, to make uh, motion systems. And so this is a very successful uh, machine. Uh, and one interesting part of this is there's very few things you need to source outside of the lab. So uh, he buys the motors, he buys the electronic components, uh, but he explained in a nice recitation, if we go back to the videos on, um, let's see, this one, uh, March 13, there's a nice video of Jens explaining the machines. Um, what he's doing is uh, doing one-sided milling 
of Bracken pinion drives with what's called a trochoidal toolpath that lets you mill harder materials. And what he has then is a parametric motion axis. It gives you a degree of freedom. And then you can assemble multiple degrees of freedom to make the machine. But all of that is parametric in the construction. And so <clears throat> that approach goes from a monolithic machine to a parametric set of de motion degrees of freedom you can make in the Fab Lab to make the machine, um, making it easier and more flexible to reproduce. In turn, um, that is both inspired by and builds on work that Nadia originally did to make machine modules to, to pre-make modules that are each a degree of freedom and you can vary additive and subtractive in 2D and 3D. Um, and then she made a version of that in cardboard that's even easier. And so she uh, has a vendor in Shenzhen produce custom motors with integrated lead screws with anti-backlash nuts that then you can make housings for. And over the years, we've sent those out to fab labs that you can qu quickly combine to make all sorts of machines with them. And she talks about all of that in her thesis linked here, uh, underscoring, I think, two really important points in thinking about machines. So one is that software used to be written in big programs. Now it's universal, pretty universally written in software modules you can rearrange. And the other is computer communication used to have dumb devices like a phone connected to a central switch. And to change anything, you had to change the central switch. Now communication is done with the, one of the core principles of the internet is what it does isn't defined by how the internet is constructed, it's defined by what you connected to it. And so those two observations add up to the idea of object-oriented hardware, which is making machines where they're made of composable components you can rearrange to make many different machines. And they're not defined by a fixed function in them, but they're defined by having a virtual function that's overlaid on them, soft rather than hard state in the machine. And her thesis, her thesis talks about all of those principles in object-oriented hardware. And so that's a um, introduction to the architecture of how to think about machines moving from a machine being a static thing with one function to a machine being a, a, a reconfigurable modular uh, thing with many functions. And the modularity can be physically in the construction, it can be abstracted in the design. For mass production, you can freeze the design, but, but insights into object-oriented hardware. So now to go about building our machine, um, you need sensors. Um, in the class coming up to remind on the schedule, um, after the break, um, I'll cover molding and casting. 
tooling to produce parts. Then we'll have a class on input devices. And on the input devices classes, I'll cover how to measure all sorts of things, like uh, distance, position, force, pressure, light. So those, that's the sensor side of the machine. And then um, on the opposite side, you need actuators. You need um, means for your mach machine to do something. And that's what we covered in, in the last week. Um, it'll take a while to master it, but we've now, you've been seeing what does it take to control a motor or uh, control a power transistor for things like a heater or control AC. So those classes cover sensors in and actuators out for the mechanisms for your machine. Then working back from that is the power electronics. Um, this is a link into the inventory I've showed and this came up a few times in the class today. Um, uh, in the standard inventory that we distribute in Fab Labs is this section from DigiKey um, with uh, transistors and motor drivers. And so I want to recap that because there was some conclusion some confusion about that in today's class. Um, if we start with this, um, this is a little tiny SOT23 part. It's 10 cents in volume. It's an NMOS FET that sinks current. Um, Here's the data sheet. And the data sheet is it can handle up to 30 volts and 1.7 amps. And once again, for calibration, 1.7 amps is about the current in something like a shop-bought motor, so really quite substantial. Um, that's the um, NMOSFET. Um, this is the mating PMOSFET. Uh, again, similar specs, and as a reminder, um, PMOS sets go up to the power supply rail, and they're sources of current. NMOS sets go to ground, and they're sinks of current. And between those, you can switch many amps of current with a very simple part. Um, if you end up needing more current, um, what comes after them is this kind of part. Um, this one is a similar logic level, a little more expensive, uh, you know, 50 cents in quantity, but this one goes up to 16 amps uh, rather than one amp at 50 volts. Um, power is current times voltage. So uh, this is getting up to um, hundreds of watts to kilowatts of power. Um, that much power, you need to be ambitious. You need that much if you're going to make something like a go-kart that moves a person or a large drone or a giant heater. Um, you can get up to a kilowatt to need that much power. But they're easy to control. You control them with the logic level switches. 
So with those um, smaller and bigger transistors, you can directly switch huge amounts of current. Uh, if you need to switch it in both directions, we then come to the H-bridge. And once again, it, it's quite non-trivial to make everything you need in an H-bridge from scratch. Uh, this recommended one that's about a dollar in quantity um, contains within the H... So uh, this one can go up to a few amps of current, and it contains within the H-bridge um, the low side, the high side, the charge pump to drive the high side, uh, the overcurrent protection, um, the logic interface, all of that in that package. Um, and then the last thing from that week is when you get up to controlling um, stepper motors, yeah, so again, for, sorry, for um, brushless motors, uh, you can make your own controllers with triple half bridges or you can buy electronic speed controllers for brushless motors. And then for stepper motors, um, you can make your own stepper drivers with two H-bridges, or at that point, you can buy them in a package uh, with a part like uh, this Allegro one um, that builds in the, the main difference is it builds in the logic for the controller all in, in the package. Um, so that's a recap of what we covered last week. And those are the skills you need to do power electronics to let you switch uh, higher currents and voltages. So those let you control the mode of forces in your machine. Then the next step working back is to start to look at control. So um, if you buy a shop bot, you can pick um, a standard. And so this, the PRS standard shop bot, um, uh, 96 by 48 is $14,000. Um, the alpha is $18,000, 18.9. So it's a few thousand dollar difference commercially going from the standard to the alpha. Uh, the difference between them is the standard is open loop. You send steps to the stepper, it makes those steps and moves. Um, a stepper motor has a holding torque. If you have a load that's greater than that, it'll miss steps which means you send the commands to it to move, but it's not actually doing what you said. And if you retrace back to where you started, you won't return to where you started. And so you can use open loop control as long as you don't get near the limit of the, the um, holding torque for the motor. You need to back off in the force and the speed. Uh, Closed loop control adds position measurement. Um, once you add position measurement, you can then be more aggressive because the machine will know if you're overloading it and be able to back off. Uh, commercially, in a machine like the ShopBot, you see closed loop control costs a few thousand dollars. Um, but technologically, 
it only costs a few dollars. It doesn't need that much. So we'll cover many ways to measure position. An example is a rotary encoder. And so a rotary encoder, one way to do that is with electrical capacitance. You have veins and you measure the electrical capacitance. One way to do it is optically. You have fingers and you measure it blocking a light. With a rotary encoder, you can measure how many turns and the angle of a rotating shaft. And you can make that measurement for a few dollars in parts. And then for a few more dollars in parts, you can add the logic for the position measurement to go to the motor controller. So commercially, there's a lot of use of open loop control, but technologically, it's gotten much cheaper and much easier. And so there's a very strong argument to make closed loop control in your machines so that you don't need to be conservative. You actually know what it's doing. Um, closed loop control also lets you discover if something goes wrong. If the machine hits a limit or if a part fails, the closed loop control will let you discover if something goes wrong. Um, and you can be much more aggressive in the settings with the machine. And in addition, for example, um, brushless DC motors have higher torque density than stepper motors, but they don't measure position. And so there's a lot of use of steppers because they measure position. But if you're going to have a closed loop controller, you don't need a stepper for positioning. You can use a brushless motor. And generally, again, those end up having more uh, power density. And so a nice combination is to use a brushless motor to drive the machine and then put it in a control loop to measure the position. This is the equivalent of making your own servo motors, and it's actually surprisingly easy to do. Um, last week was the motor control. In two weeks, we'll cover the position measurement, and then you can make your own closed loop controller. So we'll work back further still. Um, once you're doing open and closed loop control, then there's a difference between static and dynamic planning. So in a, this is an example of a big machine tool in the shop I run at MIT. And behind it, there's a one foot thick casting, this giant backbone. And that makes the machine extremely stiff. And so the idea is no matter how you drive the machine, uh, it doesn't bend or deform. The tool is exactly where you tell it to go to. You don't need to know where it is because the machine is so rigid. On the other hand, um, this is a water jet cutter, which is a wonderful tool. Um, th commercially, these cost about $100,000. There's an interesting project working on developing a affordable version of this um, uh, laser, um, which is uh, getting closer to having these available to try to make affordable uh, water jet cutting. Um, these are nice because you can cut hard materials you can't use in any other tool. But in the water jet, there's a jet of water with a garnet abrasive, 
And when you move the head, the jet curves. Um, and so what happens is, um, if you think about the nozzle of the water jet, if it's moving, it's going to leave behind a jet shaped like that. And so what that means is, on the water jet, um, what it does isn't static. What it does is dynamic. And so you don't control it by telling, if you want to make the shape of my hand, you don't tell it to follow the shape of my hand. You have a much more interesting task. You tell it to follow a path such that the curving jet leaves behind the shape of my hand. What it means is it's not a static tool. The shape of the path itself changes. And so it's a dynamic path. The same thing happens is if you have a machine that bends and deforms, you need to def um, plan the, what it's going to do around the dynamic change in shape, not the static shape. So the next distinction working back is whether your machine has a static structure or the structure of your machine itself is dynamic and needs to be part of the planning. So then that leads to the control. And uh, this is a link to a really nice book on control theory. And so let's start looking at that part. Um, so let's say we have a, a rack and pinion. Um, we're going to rotate the pinion to move along the rack. And then we have a rotary encoder on the motor driving this that gives us a position readout. So uh, going into this is the motor control. You know, say the current going to a DC motor. Um, coming out of this, is the angle from the rotary encoder. And so we need to put in power to the motor to send the position to a desired location. So the simplest thing you could do is um, uh, if you look at the current versus time, so this is time, this is current. Uh, you turn on the current, and then you turn it off when you get to the position. Um, that's a terrible thing to do. That's called a bang-bang control. And what's bad about it is when you turn it on, you'll slam the machine on, it'll lurch. Um, when you turn it off, it'll shudder to a stop. Um, so going from all on to all off, it's used, for example, in heaters, but for anything to do with motion, it's a terrible idea. So uh, a much better idea is what's called a PID control. So PID is proportional integral derivative. Um, in the old days, that was implemented with analog circuits. 
Um, now this is very easy to implement with a little bit of software and a processor. So the idea here is mathematically you take a difference. You subtract the difference between uh, one input is uh, wh where you are now, your current say position, um, and the other input is where you want to be. Um, so, uh, you know, this is X now, where you actually are, and this is X where you want to be. And so, what you get out, mathematically, this is just, I'm subtracting them, what you get out is an error. This is the difference between where you are, error. This is the difference between where you are now and where you want to be. And it could be position, it could be angle, it could be temperature, depending on what you're trying to do. So we have an error term. Um, the simplest thing you can do is take this error term and send it in to whatever it is you're controlling, like the motor. Um, so what that will do is um, initially, when you turn it on, um, if you just do P proportional control, when you first turn it on, we still have the problem that we have a big signal, and I'll um, talk about that shortly. Um, but what it does is, as you get closer and closer to where you want to be, the error term gets smaller, and so um, this uh, decreases. So the error term reduces the signal as you get close, so rather than just slamming it off. But this has a problem, which is, as you get closer, the error gets smaller, so you never actually make it to the destination because the closer you get to the destination, the smaller the error is. So the I part of PID is you take the error and you integrate it. You, you add it up and you feed some of the integral into the signal. And so what that does is, as, uh, so if we take the I part, um, as the error is going down, the integral is going up. And so eventually the integrator integrates up and it stops changing and the error goes down to zero. And so the integral, integral holds it at the final position. And so just feeding back the error, you never get to your destination. The integral term helps you get to your destination. Um, but we still have the problem that we're slamming it on. So the last thing you do is you add one more term, uh, which is a derivative. You take the, the, the rate of change, the, the slope, and then you feed that back in. And so with the, the D term, the PID D term, what then happens is initially the error is large, but um, you limit the rate of change. And so 
the D term limits how quickly you can grow, and then the error starts uh, going down, and then the integral takes over, and then you reach your destination. So a PID controller is measure what you're trying to do, um, take the difference between where you want to be, you feed back some of the error, you feed back some of the integrating up the area under it, and you feed back some of the rate of change. The error term drives you to where you want to go. The integral term makes sure you get there, and the derivative term prevents you from lurching too quickly. So those three together are the workhorse of control loops. So that, that's a PID controller. And again, um, electronically in the old days, those were done with analog circuits. You can buy those in little modules. Um, but with what you've learned in the class now, you can just write that in software. The P term is a subtraction. The I term is you add up um, the values. And the D term is you take the difference in the values. And then you put all those together into a summer. Um, and then if you read, there's a large literature on them. If you are too conservative, it takes too long to get to your destination. If you're too aggressive, you overshoot and you ring around your destination. And so there's a lot of literature on how you pick the values of these terms to arrive at your destination efficiently. So that's a PID controller, but there's more after that. So what, what the PID controller is missing is if you want to get to your destination as quickly as possible. So if we're machining, you want to machine as fast as the machine process can go, not the controller. What you really want to do is if, um, if say, this is position and this is time, you want to accelerate as fast as the machine can accelerate and then you want to deaccelerate as fast as it can deaccelerate. So if you think about driving, you smoothly accelerate away from a stop sign, you drive at a velocity, and then when you look ahead, you see the traffic light change, you begin deaccelerating. And a good driver will do that with a continuous acceleration and deacceleration, so it's smooth. A bad driver will lurch. So a PID controller alone can't do that. A more advanced controller lets you program the acceleration so that the machine is always accelerating as fast as it can safely go. But there's a problem now in implementing that, which is um, if you want to, um, if our machine is trying to get to this place here, um, roundabout here, it needs to start deaccelerating. It needs to start deaccelerating long before it actually gets to the finished destination. It needs to know I'm going over to there and roundabout here, I need to start slowing down. 
So it needs to look into the future to figure out how to slow down. And so that's what's called model predictive control. Model predictive control is to know that you need to slow down here, you actually need to have a model of how your machine behaves. And so that's a much more advanced subject for control. What you actually do is you measure not just the position at one time, but you measure the position at multiple times. And then you, you make a mathematical model of how your machine behaves and you, you use that to predict what it's going to do in the future and you use that to make the control. And so that's what you need to, to if it's a positioning machine, to get to the destination as quickly as possible but with as low vibration as smooth as possible. And so it has very practical implications. It means your machine will run faster and having less lurching means it'll work more smoothly, which will give better results, and it means it'll last longer. There's less wear and tear on it. And so improving the control has very practical results for the machine performance. And so this is a big subject. Again, there, this is one of many references. This is a nice references on the theory of control. But take away from that, um, uh, you simplest thing is just drive. Well, simplest of all is open loop. But generally, open loop is a bad idea. It's much better to be closed loop. Simplest closed loop is you just turn on and off. But that's a bad idea. Closed loop with PID is a good idea. That covers a lot. Even better, as you go a little further, is to have acceleration controls, and even better still is model predictive control. And once again, as you begin to learn about this subject, um, let me go back to, um, in, in PID control, um, you'll see lots of images. These are versions of PID controllers that typically originally assumed it's all done as an analog circuit. But adding the value, summing it, and differencing it, um, your, the little AVR processors execute millions of instructions per second. And machines typically, you know, macroscopic machines, typically nothing happens faster than thousands of times a second. And so it means you can execute a thousand processor cycles for one step of what the machine does. And so you have plenty of time in software to implement the logic of these controllers. Okay, so that's control. Now let's go back still further. You're going to have to tell the machine what to do. So, um, how do you tell the machine what to do? Um, in the machining week, I went through um, a few different standard formats. So, uh, G codes, this is what G codes look like. Um, uh, G codes have a long, strange history. They were used 
by early photo plotters, sewing machines. It's a very circuitous path. It's not a modern standard, but it's a series of letters that are followed by numbers. Um, some of the letters are standard on all machines, and some of them depend on the machine. So for any one machine, there's no universal G-code. Um, you need to know how a machine implements G-codes to be able to use this. But with G-codes, you make a series of letters followed by numbers telling the machine um, what tool to use, what kind of coordinates you're using, and then what sort of operations to do. And that's probably the most common commercial code machines use. Um, uh, this is what goes to a, a Roland milling machine. This is very similar to what goes to many laser cutters. That's HPGL. Uh, this is an old standard for um, graphic plotters um, that has pens and motion of the pen. And so again, some milling machines use HPGL, and this is also very common in laser cutters for, for their native language. Um, ShopBot defined its own spec. This is uh, what you send to a ShopBot and they defined a spec around that open SPB as uh, their standard to be a little bit simpler and cleaner. Um, those are examples of um, standard formats you produce to go to machines. Um, I'll talk about how they get made. Normal commercial programs you use can produce it. I'll talk about how you can make those. And so one way to make your machine is then to build an interpreter. So this is the tiny G. Um, this is based around uh, AVR processors. There's a successor, um, uh, the G2, um, which is based around uh, ARM processors. Um, what this does is it's a $100 scale board, and in the board is um, everything I just said. There's an interpreter for the file. You send it the G-code. Um, it has the stepper motor controllers, and then it has the control loop in software. And so um, you'll see it. this describes um, smooth, fast motion with constant acceleration as part of the logic in it. And um, this is part of a really nice um, tiny G. Um, uh, that's a store to buy it, um, but there's a nice um, GitHub site uh, for the tiny G project um, that documents the hardware and software. And so uh, you can buy all of this in a board you paste into your project that interprets the file, has the motor controller, and has the control loop. Um, as I've explained, the actual bill of materials to do this is more like $10, not $100. You can make your own controller that does all of that. It's cheaper and gives you more control over it, or you can buy this in a package, and TinyG is a nice way to do that.
So that's sending a file to the machine and interpreting it. Uh, there's a very serious reason, though, why I don't like those and don't recommend them. It you know, depends on what you're doing. But the reason is, um, if, if we take, say, Jens's machine, uh, right now what he's showing is a three-axis cutting tool. Uh, you might want to add a fourth axis so it can rotate the part so it can do all sides. You might want to add a fifth axis so it can make the part from all angles. Um, you might want to replace the cutting head with a printing head so it's a 3D printer. You might want to have two heads so that it's, it, they're interesting machines that mix a 3D printer and a 3D cutter so you can deposit material as well as remove material. Um, with something like the Tiny G controller, you send G codes to the machine, and any time you change anything on the machine, you have to tell the G code interpreter what changed in your machine. So the machine has a lot of state. If you change anything about the machine, you have to change the interpreter of the file. So the alternative to that is in, let's see, let's go to the schedule, uh, molding and casting input composites. Uh, May 10 is networking week. So on May 10, I'm going to introduce how to make uh, computer networks that let you connect multiple processors. And these are easy to do. It's very easy to make networks with our little AVRs that can run up to millions of bits a second, that the network can communicate as fast as the processor can think. But that has a really important implication, which is um, the whole architecture of uh, something like a G-code interpreter assumed computing was expensive and a scarce resource. But if you can afford to take every motor and every sensor and put a little bit of computing in them, which you can do with the processors that cost a dollar, what you can then do is make a network out of them so that there's no intelligence in the machine. The machine doesn't know anything about G-codes and it doesn't know anything about um, how it's constructed, the machine has no state. All it has is nodes on a network. Each sensor or actuator, it knows how to talk to the network. So a motor can receive commands for how to move, and it can send back commands for it, it, uh, data on what its position is. And then you run the machine over a network. Um, some information can stay locally. So the connection between a rotary encoder and a motor controller doesn't need to leave the machine on the network. That can stay locally in each degree of freedom. But then if you want to do coordinated motion, you can do that by sending instructions across the machine. So 
the emerging way machines are getting built is not to interpret commands in the machine, but to make real-time networks and then have soft machines running them. So this is a thesis that grew out of a project in the machine building class I teach, Alain Moyer wrote. Um, he went on to found um, Shaper tools. Uh, and Shaper makes a very interesting router that um, has feedback. So you move it around and then it automatically adapts to what you're cutting. Uh, and Alain wrote a nice thesis on how to make a virtual machine. And so this is based on the machine has no files, no interpretation, it's just a network. And then in software, a controlling computer generates commands to go to the machine to run it. And so uh, this is the Gestalt framework um, based on uh, Python modules for modular machine building. And so in past years in Fab Academy, um, we had uh, sites um, make the real-time network with that Gestalt framework. Um, it uses a simple Fab bus. And the Fab bus is a serial bus, but with a line for hardware handshaking. And then um, uh, we pre-made the motor control boards that talk to the bus. And then what you do is you make uh, Python modules that speak to the Gestalt software to describe your machine. And so you make simple Python programs. And then the logic of the machine you're building is in software. And then it talks over the network to all the degrees of freedom in your machine. So this is a page of documentation on doing that. And we've sent out to many of the labs the motors, the motor controllers, the fabnet. And then you can use this as a framework to make software virtual machines. And so um, if we go back to um, uh, Uh, this was um, from the last Fab Academy cycle where you cut out um, the frameworks, assemble them around the motor degrees of freedom, and then you put these together and then in software you define the machine. And so examples of doing that is calligraphy. Um, this was an optical scanner. Uh, Icelandic coffee stirrer, a Taipei light show, but this was a multi-axis hot wire cutter from Puebla in Mexico. Uh, hot, again, a, another kind of cutter. Uh, a simple lathe. Each of these are using the same kinds of degrees of freedom but assembling them in different arrangements. And then there's, again, nothing is built into the machine. What the machine does is a function in software of what you schedule communication to it. 
So those, those are real-time network machines. Um, the Gestalt framework is writing uh, Python programs. More recently, uh, I've been writing uh, mods, and um, that's to be able to build workflows in a browser. And so this page is a page from Nadia, which is um, how to build the commands of what you want the machine to do um, in mods in a browser and then send it over the network. Uh, this is sending it to the uh, Fabnet controller. And again, you can use a commercial uh, controller. You can use one you made like we covered last week. This is the standard ones um, uh, from Nadia, but this is moving the logic of the machine from a Python text program into an application you can build in the browser. And so this, this page documents that. And so all of that is to be able to rapidly design the logic of the machine. And so I encourage you to think about building your machine as virtual network machines, so in software you can configure it rather than having a fixed kind of file interpreter. Okay, so the next step back after that is um, once you can communicate with the machine, you need to tell it what to do. And so I'm going to focus now on task planning for, for uh, milling, but it's similar for many other purposes. Um, this link is to fab modules, and then uh, this link is to the more recent mods. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to explain that. Um, so uh, let me um, first save a test file. Let, um, let's, let's say look at making a PCB. Um, okay, so I've got that there. Um, so in fab modules, I could read that in. Um, I can pick a, a machine, say I'm going to mill it, pick a process, select the machine, and then what it's doing right now is something that you've been doing all class long if you're making circuit boards. It's figuring out where the tool should go. Um, oh, right, there's a Chrome. Chrome doesn't work with accelerated graphics in a virtual machine. So uh, um, uh, I'm going to do that in Firefox. So let's say we wanted to mill that on the SRM20. Okay, so here's the toolpath. Um, the problem with the fab modules is all that works in the browser, but under the hood, these are all the things doing the work. But other than me and maybe Fiori and a few people, it's hard to understand what's going on in here. It's sort of all, all invisible. It's behind the screen. So the idea of mods 
was to move that so you can see what's going on. So let me do the same thing. Um, so I'm going to, um, we're going to make that, we're going to mill the traces. I'll do the calculation. And so he, here's the same thing. Here's the toolpath. Um, this one doesn't have any uh, 3D structure. Um, but here, I'll pretend that's the board outline, even though it isn't. And I'll calculate a 3D toolpath. And so here, here that is now as a 3D toolpath. So what I want to go through now is I want to explain the calculation to understand all the steps it's doing. In the end, we have the motion for the machine to do, accounting for the tool, and then we have the links to turn that into the toolpath. So um, you've been using this, but now I want to take this class to actually explain what's going on. So here we're reading in the image, and the reason this is reading in a bitmap is any machine you make has a dynamic range from the smallest motion it can do to the biggest motion it can do, and typically it's about a factor of 10,000, between 1 and 10,000, depending on the machine. A really advanced one might be a bit more. And so that means a picture that's on the order of a few thousand by a few thousand pixels is the resolution of the machine. That, that's why I like to use those as a simple format. So here's the image. Um, this thresholds it. It makes it black and white. Um, that's not so interesting for this image because it's grayscale, um, it, because it's already black and white. If you had a grayscale image, um, this uh, varies the um, intensity with a threshold. So that's what that module is doing. Um, each of these modules contains a little bit of code. And so if we look at this one, it initializes a default value. It reads in an event. It gets an image. It puts out an event. It has a little user interface. And then it does a little local task. And so this is the little bit of code. What it's doing is it's reading the red, the green, the blue, value, and this is the intensity uh, transparency value. It's calculating the intensity, and then it's clipping it if it's above or below the threshold. So that's what that, that one does. Um, let's go back to the PCB now example. So to make the PCB, um, if we go back to that one, um, this next operation is doing what's called a distance transform. And so if we go to look at that, 
um, this is a very interesting algorithm. This is finding the distance of every pixel to the nearest edge. This is like a topography, and it tells you how far you are from the edges. And mathematically, that's, that's an interesting non-trivial algorithm. I, I won't explain it. If you scroll down, this is the math to calculate that. But the net result is here we had just the, the, what we wanted and what we didn't want. This now filled in the outside with how far you are from the edge. It's called a, a distance transform. Then once you have the distance transform, what this is doing is, is the crucial step of offsetting. So if I say the tool is small, Um, it follows it very closely, and if I tell it the tool is bigger, um, it gets further away, and if I go further still, what this is doing is it's using the distance transform to figure out how far the tool should be offset. So we have what we want to make, this is the size of our tool, and you have to offset it uh, by half of the diameter of the tool. So that's this calculation. Then once we've done that, you need to find the edges, the boundaries you want the tool to go on. So that's this calculation. Then once you've done that, you need to figure out which way they're pointing to know which way the tool should move. That's this one. Then this does an interesting thing. Until then, we just have the continuous thing to make. What this does is it turns it into vectors. It turns it into um, vectors for the tool to move. Then once you have those, um, if we come over to here, what this does is it accumulates those into nesting the multiple offsets and it sorts them to go in the shortest path and links them. Then we get to this one and what this one does is it formats it for the machine. So if we open that one up, um, this one down below, this takes the geometrical path and turns it in, into commands here that a Roland Modella understands. And then this communicates to the machine. And here we're sending it to a conventional machine, so we need to send it as a file. But if it's your own machine, you could skip this step of formatting it, and you could just talk to the network directly. Okay. So those are, that's not the only way to do these calculations. There are many ways to do it, but those are all of the steps in an example of a um, uh, path planning calculation of uh, transforming, offsetting, 
uh, vectorizing, sorting, nesting, formatting, and communicating. And part of the point of mods is you can build those in the browser. You can recombine all those steps to do many different operations. So again, this is a page from Nadia showing how you can use mods to build workflows to go to the machine. And um, mods can do many other kinds of operations. So um, this, for example, is for a photogrammetry application. This does stepping and repeating, iterating variables and stepping and looping them. And so those are all examples of what you can implement in building the path planning control. And then the, the final step is, again, assuming it's a fabrication machine, which it doesn't have to be but for this week, but assuming uh, you're focusing on a fabrication machine, once you know how to plan the path, you have to figure out how you tell the path planning what is the geometry. And so um, this is a link to the Anemone project. Um, and the reason I want to mention that one is here, if we go back to let's go back to the uh, first introductory class um, in that, I showed um, this, and I want to spend a little bit of time so on what's going on here so. First, I radiated a torus into a pyramid. Here I'm interpolating between a torus and a pyramid, and there I'm giving you all the shapes in between a torus and pyramid. Uh, what's going on under the hood is something very interesting. Um, this is a thesis Matt wrote on the math to do what I just showed you. And so to understand it, Um, there's two standard kinds of geometry in CAD. B-REP is a very old one dating from the beginning of a CAD. And so in B-REP, to represent a sphere, you, you would represent it as um, polynomial patches on the surface mathematically. And anything you do has to like cut these patches on the surface. Um, there's a much older idea that wasn't feasible until recently called FREP, which is a functional representation. And what that does is, if you want to describe a sphere, um, you write an equation. And so for a sphere, it looks like this. x squared plus y squared plus z squared minus r squared. So this is very simple, actually. This is a, a formula, and on the boundary of the sphere, it vanishes. It's negative inside, it's positive outside, and the magnitude is the distance. And so you need to figure out where that vanishes to um, describe the object. And mathematically, it's a very interesting calculation for how you do that. I won't 
explain that now, but Matt Keeter's uh, thesis talks about it. And so if we go back to the CAD class, and we look at here, um, uh, what he's doing is he's making a graph that makes the formula. And you'll see whenever I change anything in the graphic window, it flashes a little bit. The little bit of flashing in the graphics is his solver evaluating the functional representation. So when I subtract them, um, what you'll see is, um, if I go back to the GUI, the shape sparkles a little bit. That little bit of flashing is his solver figuring out where the formula vanishes to describe the object as a function. And what makes that so powerful now is the object, we have a formula that completely describes the object rather than a bunch of little patches you stick together. And so you can do operations like constructive solid geometry where you subtract them. Um, you can use variables, but I'll jump ahead. Um, in that representation, you can do things you can't do otherwise. So this is an operation that stretches the whole coordinate system. You can take a mathematical description of an object and bend it and twist it and fold it. And then you can do things, again, that you can't do otherwise, like I'll add a torus. And then I'm going to interpolate the function. And so this, I can then give you all the shapes in between the torus and that funny shape I made and continuously deform it. So that's an example of a design representation. Simplest can be like triangular patches. Most common is what are called NURBS, polynomial patches. This is a really interesting design representation based on actually solving for a, a formula for the object. And this is a project from Matt with the code to be able to do that solving under the hood. So stepping back, we just did a tour through uh, first how you think about machine architecture and going from a machine being a fixed function to uh, object-oriented machines you can recompose to do many things. Last week we covered actuators, in two weeks we'll cover sensors. Um, last week introduced, and I added a little bit more, on power electronics, controlling large loads. We then looked at open versus closed loop and generally how whenever you can, it's much better to have closed loop control over your machine. The distinction between whether what the machine does is static or you need to account for how the machine changes when you use it. The very important subject of controls and how, 
how you make the logic for what you put into the machine makes it go for where you're going to do to close the control loop, starting with just bang-bang control to error feedback to PID to finally acceleration-based control. Then the kinds of file formats that are used to talk to the machine and the interpreter versus the alternative to not send a file to the machine but make the machine a network and control it in real time. Then frameworks for scheduling the communication to the machine. Then algorithms for planning the path of the machine. And finally, representations for the geometry of what you want it to do. And when you put all those steps together, you've made a machine. Um, each of these has many options, but what I wanted to do today was give you a tour of what all of these steps look like. And then what I want you to do now is to automate your machine. So start with the passive mechanism. Remember my advice that it's a good idea to first make the machine so you work it passively, so you're the motor, so you understand it. Then when you can work it passively, make it actively. But this week and next week, in this two-week cycle, automate it. Add the sensors, add the actuators, add the controllers, and add the scheduling to make your machine do something. For this week, you don't have to make everything from scratch. You can make your own motor controllers. You can use Nadia's. You can use ones uh, I gave. You can use commercial ones. Uh, the goal for this week is not making everything from scratch. The goal for this week is system integration, is putting together all the steps I covered end-to-end -to, -end to make a machine understanding everything that's going on. Uh, I want you to document the group project. It needs to be more than one person. The group can be within your lab or it can be between labs. On the lab page, document it. And then on your personal page, document what you did on the group project. You'll build those sites. And then in addition, e each of your labs and your instructors have the instructions will make a slide, one image that shows the machine, and you'll make a, a, a very short one-minute video that demonstrates the machine. In two weeks, Rapid Fire will go through all of those to, to, to see all the machines you made. And again, remember, the main goal is system integration, learning how to put all these parts together. Um, this is meant to be bounded. After two weeks, this is done, and then you move on to final projects. Your final projects can build on the machine building, um, but this is meant to be a bounded exercise. And the other meta reason for this assignment is this is to help move towards Fab Labs making Fab Labs. The goal at the end of this is you have a much better understanding of what's going on in the machines you're using in the lab to start to think about your labs being able to create their own machines. Okay. Final questions or comments? Hello, Neil. This is Mohammed yep. from Egypt. Yep. 
So uh, in my final project, I created a microscope that uses uh, that uses two separate motors, and um, I I recreated a pep a gerbil uh, shield, which is just a gerbil code with uh, with uh, with mounting points for. Uh, so sorry, uh, uh, which uh, is this a Mohammed Hisham? Mohammed Abul Hagagi is the one on the left. Oh, sorry, no, the, the other one, sorry, the other one. So it's a very common you? name, Israel. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is me. Okay. Um, so, okay, so I haven't, uh, I haven't been able to create the board yet, but I have another question about uh, the PID controller. The yeah. thing is, I used, uh, I used the Gerbil uh, as a controller to, uh, so that I don't think that much about acceleration and deceleration as a control uh, of the mechanics yep. themselves. Uh, the thing is, this is supposed to be a base for another project. It will be uh, an, a stem cell incubator, a solvent or any biological system incubator. Okay. So uh, I will be, uh, I will also be controlling gases like CO2, O2, and humidity. So, um, is there another solution like uh, like Gerbil and Tiny G for controlling gases and solenoids? Yeah. So. Um, again, so to explain to everybody, Gerbil is, um, uh, see, where is their new site? Um, Gerbil is a commonly used um, framework to go from G codes to machine controller that, again, implements all the things I'm describing. Um, your site looks like very nice progress and a very nice project. Again, my advice to you is um, G-code is a historical legacy. Unless you have to have G-code, what I would do is you're building this lovely machine. Um, I would make it a network and then just in software talk to the network. Um, so PID is very easy to implement. You just have three terms, the error, you add it up over time and you measure the difference for those three terms. In code, it's very easy to implement um, PID. And you're really limiting yourself by having to squeeze it through G codes. Um, I would really steer you to use this week and beyond to experiment with making the machine a network and just talk over the network to the motors and the sensors. Okay. But what uh, gases? Is there something like as as a base for me to learn about controlling uh, gases or uh, or like well, code code? Yeah. Um. Uh. Let's see. I don't. I. I. Maybe I should do a hello world on PID. Um. So yeah. let's see. If we did. Uh. A. Arduino. Yeah. I'll. Um. Here, you know, uh, here, here, I don't know anything about this. This is just one search, but here's a PID library for Arduino. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you poke around, every engineering class teaches PID. I think you'll find a number of different PID libraries. Um, PID is really easy to implement. Here's a little bit of code for it. You'll find lots of different references for it. Okay. 
Here, I'll, I'll make a note to add to my homework a um, PID um, hello world. But if you poke around a bit, you'll find all sorts of uh, sources to help you with that. So that um, one of my sort of meta goals is to free you from the limits of a fixed controller so that you understand how to do that. Okay? Okay. Good. We're almost out of time. Any last questions or comments? I have a short question, Neil. It's Jacob from Norway. Yep. It's on the same topic, so hopefully it's short. Uh, it regards how different uh, than intelligent axes or something cooperate to time their moves to be to like follow the correct path. If you have a three-axis move, so that yep. they wait in the slowest motor or something like that. Yep. So that's that's a very important question. And in fact, let me make a note. I didn't talk about that, and that's a key thing to talk about. Um, so. There are many ways to do that um, in, so to understand that question, and we'll end with this question, is um, let's say in 2D we want to go from here to here. Um, we've got a motor, say, on this axis and a motor on this axis. The motors are independent, so how do we schedule when they start and when they stop so that they do the joint movement together? Um, so that coordination, there are multiple ways to do it. Um, in the, the, these boards from Nadia documented here, it's a serial bus and then there's a hardware line for handshaking. Um, so the way that one does is um, you send to both motors um, a command of how far to move and how long to take. And then there's a hardware handshaking line they can use to signal their progress. And so one way to do it is by handshaking, where they, they signal back to you. Another way to do it is what's called back pressure, which is the, mo the motors pull commands from you as they progress, and the rate they pull them from you tells them how they're progressing. Um, another way to do it is with timestamps. Each of the processors has a clock, so along with the motion, you send out timestamps for when they should do the motion. Um, you don't have to do those things if it's all on one board. But when you do it in a network, those are all alternative ways to do those functions. And again, some of the links I gave you, like Alain's thesis talks about that. But common ones, once again, are hardware handshaking for coordination, back pressure where you measure how they communicate, and you use a real-time clock and you use timestamps to coordinate, or all standard ways to do that timing. In which, where does um, uh, like using sync messages um, uh, come into that? Where does what? With the follow sync messages, like on CAN buses, um, which I use for bigger motor, bigger machine control. Um, then um, yes. they 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 use they sometimes use sync sync message to make sure that all the commands are you know run at the same time. Yeah. So any of these need that meaning. Oh, yeah. Actually, sorry. That's that's a that that's a slight there. I mean that. One, these are slightly non-orthogonal, which is 
handshaking lets you tell when everybody did what you want them to do. Um, one thing you can do is, while emotion is happening, you can be communicating to set up the next one. And so you tell everybody what motion they're going to do, and then you do a broadcast, say, you spend a little while communicating, and then you do a broadcast and say, do this all now. Um, doing that still needs one of these things, like back pressure or hardware handshaking or time stamping, so you know when they've done what you're telling them to do. But you can then use a broadcast coordination to communicate more slowly, separately, but then at very precise timing say, do this now. Um, one thing to understand about all of this is this is considered sensitive and difficult and complex in a lot of engineering. It's real-time networking. But the thing I keep stressing is the processors are running at millions of cycles a second and the machines are running at thousands of cycles a second. So you have lots of time per macroscopic operation to do these kinds of um, handshaking. Okay, does that help? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and you'll find lots of references of to that in the links coming off of uh, today's page. Okay, so with that, happy machine building. Um, this isn't meant to be your life's work. This is meant to be a bounded assignment. The goal is system integration. Um, no, we do have the recitation with Emory, strongly recommended, but then no class or recitation. You can use that both for time off and for work on the machines and catching up on everything else. And then I'll see you after Amy's re recitation back in class on the 19th. Okay. Happy machine building. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.